handle the recruiting uh, for our, our offices. His name, you guys, was Daddy. Aww. Talk about the most awkward you can call me phone call I have ever had. <laughs> now, Sage. Sandra. <laughs> you want to sage by anyone? No, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> sure, you can do that. You no. should. Just start, just start introducing yourself as that. I can totally teach you on how to do this because... Because you've done it your whole life. It's not even your real name. I didn't know that. I remember I talked to Lisa. She's like, yeah, did you talk to John? Who's John? Like, I don't... I had no idea who John was. And then I was like, oh, He's Sebastian. Fictional. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Hey, you yeah. could definitely teach me how to do that. Yeah, it's easy. You just it introduce yourself to a new group of people and you introduce yeah. yourself in your name. That's all I know. Doing. Cool. Although you can tell who knows you by how they name you. Right? Mm. Like, really, the only people in my life that call me John <coughs> are my family, really old friends, or people who know me legally. Casey, yeah. Yeah, like so for legal reasons, yeah. Lisa knows me because she needed it for my corporation and all the paperwork. Uh, yeah. I my, my legal name. I would feel weird calling you John. <coughs> I don't, I, I respond to it, but I don't, it isn't my favorite name. But not because I don't like the name, it's a beautiful name. It's just, if I could go into my fucking phone book right now, and there's like John. 15 yeah. Johns. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was the whole reason it happened, because there's three Johns on my soccer team, and I'm like, fuck it, I've been wanting to do this yeah. for a while, it's Sebastian. <laughs> Sebastian. Where did you get that? Oh, Is no. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> 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 you gotta slow it down. <laughs> I always loved the name. Cough attack. Cue in the cough attack. I always loved the name Sebastian. Yeah. Probably from another lifetime, I'm guessing. But the spelling is also very. It's different. Yeah. yeah. I picked the spelling. Mm -hmm. um, but she is not totally wrong. Yeah. Um, I was going through a younger process of life crisis and watched Cruel Intentions mm -hmm. by myself uh -huh. twice. Twice? Like literally sat <laughs> in the theater, uh -huh. watched it, walked back out, said, can I watch it again? What? Guys, no, they did. They, they were like, and walked right back in and watched it. And then I was like, that was when I knew. I'm going by that name. You're not recording any of this, any? Yeah. Delete it all. Good content. Delete it all. Anyway. Good material. So I got my good friend Jason here. Let's talk about him. All right. more interesting than any other names, Jason, that you go by? Wink Daddy. Wink Daddy? Wow. That's a... That's not, that's not my made-up name, but yeah. that was uh, Osborne and Jimmy, you know, yeah. when I first started. That was kind of... Wink Daddy. Yeah. That is so Because Jason is like every every male born in the 70s, you know, uh -huh. his first name Jason. There was one okay. point when I worked for Glaxo, there was like seven or eight reps in, in the, kind of the northeastern part of Florida, and six of the eight people in mm -hmm. the geography were named Jason. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Is that his name? Or Winks, you know, all those kind of like, when you've got a normal first name. Are you changing his contact? <laughs> Daddy. Uh -huh. Daddy. Oh my gosh, this is going a little bit off tangent, but um, I had a candidate whose name, I handle the recruiting uh, for our, our offices. His name, you guys, legit was Daddy. No. Yes. No, boy. Talk about the most awkward you can call me phone Daddy. call I have ever had. <laughs> no, and he spelled it differently. It was D-A-D-I. So uh, I went into Daddy. it. I, that's, that's exactly Daddy. what I went into. I was like, he goes, no, it's Daddy. Daddy. That is exactly what happened. So I went into the call like, 
daddy, like trying to change the pronunciation because that is really weird yeah. to me. And he corrected me. He was like, no, it's actually pronounced daddy. I was like, all right. Well, <laughs> yeah. So I just went through the entire pitch How's calling him daddy. It was the weirdest thing. It was so awkward. But, that, but that's interesting how names have meaning to us. Like it's kind of yeah. the same thing. A little bit. He was kind you. of douchey though. That's was the it? other part. Ooh. That's the other part yeah. that was like, yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. He was not humble about it. I think that over the years, it kind of like persona. Yeah, it just kind of became a thing for him. But he was not shy about like, no, like it's pronounced daddy, and he his personality was yeah. ugh. It's, it's like just weird. So I get it in in Hispanic culture, and I'd love to hear your take on this. Um, because you say Jesus. No, Jesus. Jesus. So I can get around that because yeah. it's different. But to call somebody else Jesus, Jesus. Right. Yeah. Like, like, I'm like, ah. <laughs> like forget whatever your religious leanings are. It's yeah. just for whatever reason to like yeah. call somebody Jesus. I'm like, okay, I can say Jesus because that's right. different. I have a couple of friends named Jesus. I think you know a couple of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's like Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. Or like Buddha. You just call somebody, yeah, what's up, Buddha? I've never heard Are of that. Are there people named Buddha? I don't know. Oh. I know a booty. A booty as well. Yeah. Booty. Bali. I was, at one yeah. time I was in the field early in the game um, in this part of Pasadena that was like all hills. Uh -huh. And it was predominantly like a Korean neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Straight up on my fucking lead list, this guy's name oh, was yeah. Fook So Long. <laughs> <laughs> I was like... What am I supposed to do with this? I know. So then I go to the door and I'm like, is, is uh, Mr. Long here? And he's like, which one? I'm like, Fook. Goddamn. P-H-U-K-S-O-O-L-O-N-G. Yeah. Fook so long. It's like, awkward. Lovely. Well, it's, it's good. good for you. Yeah. That had, that's that's my, my most uh, just funny conversation that I had. That takes it all. Yeah. For sure. That's funny. I can't believe you guys had a lead list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With like real uh, real names on it. Yeah, like, we're wow. way past that now. Yeah. <laughs> that was rough though. Because like now everything's on our iPads, which is lovely, but back in the day mm -hmm. it was like printed paper. And that particular day it was raining one of the two days a year oh, it rains no. in California. Yeah. So like everything was bleeding and like oh, falling no. apart. It's the worst day ever. We just had to make our own callback list. It was just a blank sheet of paper with you some lines on it. And you have to go in and write the name of the business and like who you, you know, who's the decision maker. <laughs> callback shit. She do you know, is this yeah. yeah. I, I got kicked out, like yeah, get the hell out of here or like no, okay. They gave me at least the name of the person I can come back and talk to before I finish this territory. No, it's proprietary. We want that now right. because now we own the customer. Yeah. Right. It's a different day. Mm -hmm. So it was like early early 2000s. Yeah. This was yeah, this was 99 through 2000. I mean, I built my uh, my team on residential trash. Yeah, the campaign was Rumpke Trash Service oh, in Indianapolis. Oh, this. is that uh, trash service? Yeah. Okay. Waste management. Yeah. Took that over at some point. Mm. What other campaigns were you on? Yeah. Oh, man, um, I started on AT&T B2B in Atlanta. You, you started in Atlanta? So yeah. were you part of that famous address? Yeah, uh, 1100 Spring Street. Yeah, 1100 Spring Street. Yeah. Yeah, we just brought that up over yeah. the weekend. A lot of epic leaders came out of that. Hell yeah, that was a, that was a legendary uh, address. So uh, at the time, yeah, obviously John was the, the manager. Uh, he's tw I think he was 28 at the time. 
and he was uh, you he's know, just a little bit older now. Yeah, well, he had a, like a couple of Hugo Boss suits at the time, but you know he definitely was uh, was becoming John Wiggins. And uh, you know, Brandy had just opened up her office maybe seven months earlier in Charlotte, and I want to say Sessions was her assistant manager at the time. <clears throat> but she came back to Atlanta for something family related. And, uh, Matt McCarron was the guy that took me out, you know, for a day of observation and came back and he told me about Brandy, you know, uh, you know UGA, blind girl, just setting the world on fire and, you know, I was trying to decide, am I going to med school <laughs> at the end of the summer uh, or am I going to defer and do something else? And so you were thinking about going to med school, yeah. which is interesting because you just brought up that your oldest son mm -hmm. wants to go to med school now. Yep. I'm going to go back to that, but anyway, keep yeah, going. Yeah. So, you know, I was, uh, came in and, and, you know, tons of energy and obviously Matt kind of Jones affected me with, uh, oh, she was a sorry girl at Georgia or whatever. She's going to do your final interview. And you know, she made, you know, 80 grand, you know, first year out, 100 grand. I was like, oh, okay, that's mm -hmm. interesting, cool. And did my final interview and obviously <clears throat> very charismatic, you know, w with her and then, you know, got the offer or whatever and then started the next day and, you know, got caught up in the energy and the passion of, uh, and I just love the fact that, you know, every day the scoreboard starts at zero, mm. you know, what are you going to do, right? So I love, that, I love that competitiveness of it and that's kind of really what drew me in was the energy and, uh, and just that. And you, so you did it for six years mm -hmm. and then uh, I just getting to know you over the years, you kind of took that, and it makes sense because you started right out of high school? Right out of college, yeah. Right at, so yeah. right out of college, okay. Yeah. So, you, so you got your first four years done, you were thinking about going on to med school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, I applied, got in. I, I finished, I took <clears throat> fall semester of my senior year off at Chapel Hill to write an honors thesis in epidemiology and pathology and then kind of get my stuff ready to go testing-wise for MCATs and, and all that. This makes so much more sense yep. because you talk with that kind of background. Mm -hmm. Like even when I talk to you in cannabis, right. it's like you have an understanding of the way um, like cannabis impacts your body like a medical student would or a like a doctor would. So yeah. this makes a hell of a lot more sense to me now. And so you, and I didn't know this until today, somehow I, this, I never caught this, you were born in South Dakota. I was. And yeah. So how long were you there for? So I <clears throat> born and raised the first day of four years in Rapid City, and then we moved to Las Vegas, then we moved back to Vermilion, South Dakota, then we wow. moved back to Vegas, then we moved back to Sioux Falls. So I moved about, I think in my 20s, at that point in time I'd lived in, when I was 22 or 23, I'd lived in like 23 different houses oh in, in several different states and stuff. So we'll come back to that. Yeah. That's a hill of a gear change, though. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. South Dakota to Vegas. Yeah, I couldn't think of two more opposite totally. cultures. But go back to Dre's question: was yeah. what was the reasoning for, for the moves? moves? It wasn't a military yeah. family, right? No, That's really no. <clears throat> my dad was mining. A, yeah, my dad was a lawyer. Okay, um, and then he got into the corporate this all corporate lawyer <laughs> side of things, and then he ended up becoming the CEO of Citibank, um, and that was they had started wow. an operation in Nevada in addition to being headquartered in, in Sioux Falls. Um, and so that was kind of why we did the hopping back and forth a couple of times. So your dad was the CEO of Citibank? The Citibank, yeah, in South Dakota. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. <clears throat> when I was, we were doing a lot of traveling when I was younger, which was cool. We had an opportunity to get get out and see a lot of different spots. But I somehow I'd 
God, picked up a, a coffee mug, I think, in Hawaii, mm -hmm. and it said, "Yeah, you gotta get the personalized Jason, you know, whatever coffee mug." When I was like maybe six years old, and they didn't have that. Yeah, they hadn't come up with that yet. <laughs> but it said, you know, and Jason, you know, in Greek, you know, means the one who heals. And then Ooh. I, had, you know, was pretty sick as a kid. A lot of tonsillitis stuff had my tonsils out when I was six, and so I spent a lot of time in the pediatric offices. And I was like, "Oh, this is cool. It'd be a great." Your profession, you know, help people, you know, build relationships with families, you know. So that was kind of my mindset yeah. early in age. Oh, I'm going to be a doctor. That seems like a great career. And this is back when physicians, even primary care guys, did pretty well, you know, financially. So I was like, oh, that sounds like a good career and, you know, noble profession and, and, and so forth. And so I went to school and majored in biology. And that was going to be what you have to be so focused, you know, if you're going to take that track, you know. Yeah. So you majored in biology. Majored in biology, minored in chemistry. And you make so much more sense to me now. <laughs> you know, like, because yeah. you come at life that way. Yeah. This is so interesting. But so then you're also a phenomenal salesperson. Like, you're a great speaker. You articulate well. You make compelling cases. You don't generally put doctors in that category. Or, or people like majored in biology, you don't normally think, oh, biology degree, great speaker, great at sales, or even going to go into sales. Now, dad having a legal background, CEO of a major company, I'm like, okay, that makes yeah. sense. There is the influence. But yeah. that's a very unique hybrid of person that could be incredibly potent in the world because you're able to relate to both sides. And I know this about you. I can see that. It's like you have a mind that relates to the engineering side, that understands more technical things and seems uh, almost attracted to it, but also can articulate with the influence of the artist and the salesperson. So where does that come from? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just <clears throat> those early childhood moves, right? Being forced into yeah. un uncomfortable situations yep. where you, you don't know anybody and you're mm -hmm. forced to like get out of your comfort zone and really, you know, either sink or swim, you know, yeah. and you have to make the decision early in life, you know, you know, how do you go about building relationships and selling yourself and, uh, you know, to other people, and it was just something I learned growing up. You, know, you have to put yourself out there. You have to trust people, and you know, yeah. um, and, and get out and, and into the world and, and get uncomfortable in, in those situations, and, and uh, you know, be successful. Yeah. My dad's very introverted, right? Yeah. You know, um, he's a marine. Yeah, you know, so he, I mean, he's got really innate leadership <laughs> abilities, and he he can turn it on when he needs to in terms of building relationships with people yeah. and creating a good culture, but <clears throat> he's not like a social butterfly. He was never, you know, going out to parties or like <laughs> yeah. just kind of staying at home and, and yeah, you know, just being a dad when he was not working all the time. So, so he was a Marine, uh, and that would have been <coughs> Vietnam War-ish. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I just got, you know, put in those situations early in life and then just thrived in them and, and uh, kind of took that to school, you know, at, at Chapel Hill and was like, all right, you know. As a doctor, you got to be a little bit outgoing, and you doesn't, I don't care what profession you're in, you got to sell. <laughs> you got to be confident in order to get people to trust you in whatever you're doing. So you better be knowledgeable, and, and you better be able to communicate effectively. You know what you're, you know, whether it's getting a patient to be compliant, you know, on a certain medication or you know self-treatment regimen. You have to be able to sell it. And we, I love hearing you say this because we talk about this all of the time in our business management training program. Like, Statistically, pre-COVID at least, one in nine people are in the profession of sales. But if you're human, 
you're selling, mm -hmm. right? So learning how to sell is a fundamental skill set, an elastic skill set, and a soft skill set that applies everywhere. Uh, so I love hearing you say that. So how is that? Like, and I, I, mean, I know your your story and, and the, the different things that you've gone through, and certainly you can see how sales and those early, you know, those six years in the business kind of create a foundation or formulation how you see things. You're generally attracted to performance-based businesses when I talk about, when I've listened to you talk about the different things you've you've built. All of them, one way or the other, were built around performance, right? Was that something that you learned as a result of this business? Was that always in you? Like, uh, where, where did that come from? And I noticed you seem yeah. to be attracted to that to this day. Yeah. I think you just growing up and, you know, having successful parents and having expectations placed upon you, you know, to always do your best, you know, whatever that is for you. Uh, and that just knowing that I wasn't, you know, uber smart, you know, Mensa, you know, type person, but smart enough. And at the end of the day, you know, you just, you had to outwork everybody, you know, like that was going to be my redeeming differentiator. <laughs> it was the, you know, I may not be the, the fastest or the smartest or whatever, but I'm willing to endure you know, more pain and I'm willing to push myself harder than the average person. And that's how you're going to get ahead in life. <clears throat> so the business was a microcosm of that, right? And yep. so I just naturally gravitated towards, you know, the business and like-minded people. And I just, you know, the harder it is and the more likely that somebody's going to drop off and quit made it that much easier for me to succeed. And all I had to do was not quit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. I made a, a promise to myself. I was like, I will, you know, I'm never going to quit when things are going bad. You know, I'm going to walk away on top. On top. Hell yeah. And then I know I'm making the right decision. It's not based on emotion. Yep. And it's based on, you know, thought process and goals and what I want to do next. So. I remember that from Tedford. I feel like Tedford said that one time and it kind of stuck with me. Like if you're going to quit, quit on top. you're going to quit yeah. on top. Fundamentally, because <sighs> the problem with quitters is they quit. Mm -hmm. Like if you always quit when it's, when it's hard, right. that's going to mm -hmm. become a pattern. That's yeah. a habit. Yeah. And you yeah. don't want to start that. And so yeah, I kind of try to pass those same life lessons on to my kids too, right? You have three boys. Three boys. Yeah. And the oldest is 17, youngest is 11. Mm -hmm. Did you play any sports growing up? I grew up playing football and soccer. Um, and then just running, you know, whether it be track or, or cross country, that kind of stuff. So I love the, you know, I always make that microcosm or the example of like running long distances or mile plus is like that burn and that pain mm -hmm. that you feel is either going to push you or it's going to make you quit. Um, and, and that's the same truth in life, right? Yeah. Is those difficult times, you know, don't last, but tough people do, right? And so... <clears throat> I always kind of like thought about that when I was running. I was like, yeah, this hurts and this burns, but you know, if I can push through this, you know, most people are not wanting to do that. Yeah. Makes my heart happy to say soccer yeah. and football. Yeah. I wanted to play football growing up, but my, my mom wouldn't let me because oh, I remember. she yeah. was afraid of me getting injured. But soccer players and football players, at least where I grew up, maybe it's not the case everywhere, were always kind of at odds with one another because they, although they generally were at different times of the year, because mm -hmm. depending on where you went to school, but it was like, football players were the meatheads and the mm -hmm. soccer players were like the like scrawny guys who ran a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fun to hear somebody who did both. Yeah. Uh, and your, your kids all are in sports Yep. and play football, all of them. Yep. They all play football and uh, they all play soccer. And mm -hmm. then the nice. two older ones are in lacrosse season right now. So oh, nice. Yeah. 
I love that. Wow. Okay, so you left, you did, did the business for six years in the early 2000s, and then you left. Where'd you go from there? Uh, so from there, I went to work for GlaxoSmithKline. So okay, that was the next one. So yeah. more in the medical field. So yeah. got your training, had your run, learned some good lessons, decided it's time to move on. You originally wanted to go to medical school, so not surprising you kind of gravitated towards the medical field. Yeah. Real quick before we go there, how did your dad, mom feel about you starting in the business and not going to medical school? I'm going to guess they weren't super pumped on that or did they care? Know, they didn't really care. They're like, hey, are you happy? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know? So they're like, hey, as long as you're happy and you, you can provide for yourself and uh, your wife and your family, like, do whatever you want to do, you know? It might have been different if they came from like a medical background too because I feel like that that's usually the case where I feel yeah. like a lot of parents are disappointed because that's their field and or they wanted, want it yeah. yeah what did your mom do she Sorry. was yeah she was a, a nurse uh oh, before was. i was born and okay. then she stopped okay you know, mm -hmm. domestic engineer afterwards mm -hmm. yeah. so mom was a nurse yeah dad was a lawyer yeah dad was successful in the business world so and, and so he their, their general sentiment was just be happy mm -hmm. yeah I can safely say in all of the years of coaching that I don't run into a lot of parents that show up that way for their kids. Generally, right. they have agendas for what they think is best for their children, what they sure. should do. Oh, yeah. So, what, so why, what do you think made your parents different? Why weren't they more that way? I think they just knew, you know, you know rearing me as a child and very headstrong and stubborn. And the more they pushed <laughs> for something, the more I was going to push back against it. Uh, so they said, you know, why, why, you know, why fight it, right? It's like, hey, you know, we don't care what you do, just be, you know, be successful, do it the best you can, and, and as long as you're able to provide and be happy, then that's really what life's about. I 100% agree. That's beautiful. That's just, I think, pretty lucky to have parents like that. So you went to work at GSK, and you were focused on vaccines. Yeah, what <clears throat> originally started in the, the kind of the uh, respiratory division, and very quickly. Um, pivoted because it was not a, um, I like knowing if I'm selling something and that whole industry was just about, you know, hey, there's six reps and, you know, five of them are named Jason and we're all kind of have the same products in our bag and like, you know what, I could sell somebody clinically and then they get the script, they go to the pharmacy and then the pharmacist says, you know, hey, you know, this is the generic here is cheaper, you know, and you get mm. switched. And so even if you sold somebody, you never knew if you really were making an impact or not. And so mm. didn't really like that. That was specific to respiratory vaccines? Well, no, that was just respiratory products. So like oh, Advair, okay, Clone A, somebody, yep, yep, yep. you know, some of those types of products, um, as well as, um, you know, stuff for um, uh, migraines, Imatrex, that kind of stuff. So I just very quickly found that type of sales was not fulfilling. my bag. Yeah, yeah, it was not fulfilling. and. Uh, the vaccines division was kind of like a startup within a large corporate. So it was kind of a best of both worlds at that time. Uh, and it was exploding with growth and new new products. And, and it was products I could believe in in terms of disease prevention. And ultimately, you know, hepatitis B was really the first anti-cancer anti vaccine, if you, if you will, that um, you know, came out. So it was like, you know, can I believe in it? <clears throat> and then it's a buy and bill you know, type of system. So you and knew then, if you sold something because you got a PO and, you know, somebody, <laughs> you know, was writing you a check. So. 
And hepatitis B was the first vaccine that you sold for? Well, we had, I had 14 different vaccines, but yeah, we sold childhood as well as adult vaccines. And, and HPV would have been in that time yeah. period, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cervarex was the yep. HPV that competed with uh, Gardasil from Merck. Gardasil, mm -hmm. yep. Um, so that's, that's it. I have so many questions around this just because of the current climate we're in. Um, but so how long were you there? A little, little over seven years. And it always, I mean, from, from our conversations, you were among the best uh, when you were in our business. Um, my, my, my work with you, you tend to rise to the top of whatever you're doing. How did you do at GSK? Did, <clears throat> did really well. Multiple you know, president's clubs and you know, diamond trips. And I think uh, my first full year in vaccines, 2007 or eight, I think I was the number one rep in Florida and the number three rep in the Southeast and, and the top 0.4% of, you know, about 600 reps in the country. So did, did pretty well. <laughs> I would say. Uh, from that standpoint. Degree in biology, has a, has a passion for the medical field, gets into direct sales for six years, starts selling vaccines, goes to number one or goes to the top, top of his class. And then what, why did you leave there? What made you pivot? And that was Iris. Is Intuitive next? Yeah, Intuitive was next. <clears throat> really, after you know, seven years, you know, you know, yeah, my family was starting to be you know, raised and, mm -hmm. uh, and so forth, which was great because that gave me the time I needed to be, a, be able to be at home and not travel as much as I was traveling you know, prior in the business. And so it fulfilled a lot of the, the home you know, needs that I had you know, personally as a dad. And, but, you know, as most things, big corporate, um, you know, kind of that, that barbarian to bureaucratic type process, you know, from hyper growth phase to, yeah. you know, which is a great book by Lawrence Miller, uh, yeah. if uh, anybody hasn't read it that I recommend. But yeah, it was going through that phase, you know, there was a new CEO that came on um, that basically just stated that, you know, 50% of all promotional opportunities have to go to minority applicants. It didn't matter, you know, Lovely. how good you are uh, at your job and the merits, it's just matter, did you check that box or not? Then they took away kind of the salesmanship out of the role where they said, hey, you're no longer going to get paid, you know, and have like a quarterly number of doses that you need to sell. Everything is going to be based on uh, customer evaluation surveys. You don't know who within an account is getting the survey to fill out on you. It could yeah. be some maniac you never even talked to that <laughs> mark you down or up. Uh, and then it was like, you know, a number of check boxes, uh, you know, with your boss when they're, you know, riding with you, you have to hit these and you can't ever have all of them at 100% because there's got to be something for you to work on. And so it was just a myriad of arbitrary BS that I was like, you know, this is taking all the fun out of it. I don't really see how I can control my income. It's starting to get capped. It's time to move on to the next thing. And so, yeah. Your experience with selling vaccines specifically uh, and I, yeah, I know you have a medical mind, but not necessarily the medical science of it. But did that help shape your perspective on what you were seeing go down with the vaccine rollout that we did with COVID in any way? Or was it yeah, like, did, yeah, it, did, I, did you, was there anything you could borrow from, from your personal oh, experience? Oh, for sure, yeah. I had a real good understanding of you know, <clears throat> the timeline it takes to get stuff approved and then the types of tests and studies that need to be done, you know, prior. And so that was kind of one of my main reasons, you know, that I went with the J&J &J vaccine, which was a DNA versus an mRNA, just because there wasn't enough data on mRNA, mm -hmm. where I really felt, you know, if there was a, a, a choice, you know, I felt more comfortable, you know, with the DNA version versus the mRNA. Because there's a lot more science and a lot more data behind it. Right. 
Right. And you don't have, it doesn't have to be stored at, you know, negative, you know, mm-hmm. 27 degrees Celsius or whatever <laughs> the requirements were. It was just that alone. I was like, this seems more stable, you know, and uh, it seems rushed and, and, and so forth. So that was. How do you feel about the kind of how we responded in, in relation to COVID with the vaccines? Do you feel like just based on your background and experience, yeah. it was done well? barring the situation yeah i mean obviously unprecedented times and 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 so i certainly understand it both from um, the corporate reaction and and the scientific you know hey we got to get something together fast and you know something's better than nothing and you know um, but when you look back and you know the data is all skewed and you know (laughs) it's you know whether you know the government was trying to do right, but ended up hurting themselves in terms of how they uh, incentivized the hospitals and physicians to code, you know, things for you know, COVID Super deaths, even though it was a car accident, you know, yeah. and they tested positive. Running, and, running yeah. joke, yeah. hit by a bus, right. died of COVID. Yeah, heart yeah. attack. And yeah, but if you're getting an extra 18 grand for that code and, you know, you're unable to, uh, you know, make money, you know, with elective procedures, let's say, as a hospital during that time period. Right. Because they were outlawing all those procedures, you know, due to the burden on the systems. Then, okay, you kind of understand why they gave an extra incentive there. But at the end of the day, it it did more harm probably than good um, from from a statistical understanding of, you know, how impactful really is this pandemic and, you know, uh, what's the morbidity and mortality. You know, really, what are those rates? And you know, we just didn't know. <laughs> their, their big pitch was on the Da Vinci, which is a machine. Um, I'll let you explain it better than me. But that essentially robotic robotics that's doing surgery. And like the, I think their claim to fame at the time was that their their machine could sew up a grape, like wow. suture oh, a grape yeah, back yeah, together, yeah. which is pretty incredible. And at one point, they thought about it make, um, you could do remote surgery, which sounds like never really became a thing for some other reasons. So that would have been fun to sell, but you were over breakfast. You were telling me what you were doing, and I had no idea there was so much that went into this. But it was not just you didn't just sell the machine and go, okay, thanks, bye, and move on. Like there was a lot that went into that. So explain that move and and what that was for you, and then yeah. So I had a friend that had had gone to work um, for Intuitive, and I used to see him in the hospitals, and was asking about what he was doing and. Yeah, you know, started doing a little research on the technology, and I said, "Wow, that's that's next gen tech," and, and um, yeah, that's something I could get pretty passionate about in terms of if the long term benefits, you know, for having that type of procedure really exist. And this is something that's really going to change healthcare, uh, and that's you know, I always look for growing markets, right? <clears throat> I've always got that advice, you know, it's like, hey. Look for disruptive technology. Look for uh, markets that are on the on the upswing. There's going to be a lot of opportunity, and then, you know, just if you keep looking for that, that's kind of like the formula to like stay on top of the wave. <laughs> and that's a consistent pattern, right? right? Because GSK was vaccines, which was a new division for them. Mm-hmm. You kind of rolled over to that quickly, and then with Intuitive, same yeah. idea. Yeah, but uh, you know, I, so the tech was really what drew me yeah. uh, to Intuitive. Um, and then just how much more impactful you could be um, in terms of self-gratification from working with, with surgeons, you know, uh, where, you know, it's totally foreign to them. You know, you, you get an expert laparoscopist or open surgeon and you get them on a robot and they look like they don't even know what they're doing. <laughs> you know, and you're training them and you're taking them through a clinical pathway uh, and they're trusting you to be their kind of their guide, you know, on, in that pathway. Uh, which is going to lead them to their first successful case and then you know 
hopefully the thousandth case. And Can you explain real quickly what the Da Vinci does and the impact it had on the industry? Yeah, sure. So it's a soft tissue robotics platform. Um, so it's not automated. Um, you know, so the surgeon is in full control, but it basically consists of three components. So you've got um, the, the business end of the robot or the surgical uh, robotic piece, which is, you know, has instruments attached, and then those instruments are placed through trocars, um, you know, small little incisions, five millimeter, eight millimeter incisions. So uh, for the patient, you know, instead of being split wide open or having uh, you know, an excision uh, site there, you're able to do the procedure through tall, you know, small little uh, cosmetically appeasing uh, type incisions, which obviously make smaller holes, quicker recovery, mm -hmm. less blood loss, and so forth. Less invasive, so, less risk. Less risk, yeah. Um, Is it for certain types of surgeries? So it's really soft tissue, like uh, procedure-wise, anything in the abdominal cavity or thoracic cavity, and then you know, there were some applications for transoral and transanal procedures as well. So if you're talking mm -hmm. about an ultra-low rectal uh, tumor, you can go through the rectum and, and excise you know, the tumor uh, as opposed to having to, to go in through the abdominal wall and, and potentially prevent a patient from having to have a, you know, a colostomy for the rest of their life. Yeah. So super impactful in terms of quality of life for patients, you know, quicker recovery um, so they can get back to their families and, 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 and do what they want to do instead of me. And then when you get two <laughs> tiny little holes versus like getting That's cut open. Yeah, Stem like to stern, the, yeah. Recoveries, yeah, I mean, amazing. and just. For the hospitals, the impact is you know, lower, you know, greater throughput, shorter length of stays, you know, both in the PACU after the surgery as well as on the floor, uh, and then less uh, you know, surgical site infections, and a lot of those things that you know, may readmit a patient uh, mm -hmm. into the hospital. And so you know, the executives love it from the standpoint of, okay, my bonus is based on <laughs> yeah, lower readmits. The business and, side of this. Yeah, yeah the, kind of the accountability healthcare <clears throat> piece of it. It fits very nicely you know, into that whole, whole thing. Right? Well, also, probably shitty to say, but also you can see more patients. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You do, can do more procedures, do. things of that nature. So, yeah, the you know, robot, you know, so again, you have the business end, you got a surgeon console, and then you got like a patient cart. Uh, monitoring system. So there's the three components of the robot. The surgeon's out of the surgical field, uh, so they're sitting down. It's ergonomic for them, so in terms of like extending a surgeon's career, mm. we're not having to stand up for 14, 15 hours a day and then be able to sit down and operate. And then you got a surgeon viewer, so you, you're seeing the surgical field inside the patient with you know 10 times magnification, and now you've got instruments that have wrists, so you have seven degrees of freedom pitch yaw and, and we, so forth we didn't talk about this yeah. at breakfast but like who would say no to, like when i'm hearing you i'm like who says no to this yeah like why wouldn't you do this yeah well not not from a surgery <laughs> standpoint from a hospital yeah. standpoint yeah yeah we have the hospitals you know typically you know they, they're going to look at okay the upfront capital cost okay it's a two million dollar robot it's roughly three thousand dollars per procedure depending on what procedure you're talking about whether it's a gallbladder or a colon or you know a thoracic case like a lobectomy or something so those case costs vary but they're generally a little bit more expensive uh, so in terms of cost to treat is a little higher but uh, those yeah. downstream you know adverse things improved and what's the you know the financial impact there right mm -hmm. and yeah i guess the early um, reticence with robotics is like the cases take too long they cost too much, they take too long. Well, anytime you're learning a new technology, are you including the learning curves in there? Or is this, you know, are you looking at the times from a surgeon that's on case 100? You know, so yep. when it's early in the technology adoption, 
there's a lot of those mitigating kind of factors that you got to kind of consider and uh, in, into your equation of should I do it, should I not do it, uh, and what have you. But for me, I just tried to simplify because there was no data to show early on that it was necessarily superior. But again, we know now, yeah. which is fun hearing you say yeah. this because like now it's it's uh, pervasive, right? It's it's yeah. the standard, gold standard for a lot of procedures. So yeah, you know, again, if you can see better and you're less limited by your instruments, how are you going to be worse? Yeah. And your formula was look for emerging technologies that are disruptive that can change industries. And that's kind of been something you've always looked for as you've moved into different industries. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and so then we got to know each other through Novium, <coughs> which is uh, essentially a startup in the cannabis industry. And cannabis is still the wild, wild west, but mm -hmm. seems like it's getting cleaned up over the years. So what was your, I mean, obviously using that formula somewhat makes sense, right? Yeah. Disruptive, moving into a field that's about to blow up, and I think we agree it is. But give us uh, your kind of take on cannabis and, and what you think about that industry. Yeah, you know, it wasn't something I had a lot of experience with. So going from, you know, a wildly successful med tech startup to mature, you know, uh, uh, you know, adopted technology, you know, it's kind of, you know, okay, that's, a, that's something to consider to walk away from. But I said, you know, look at the market. Let me do some research. I got it um, introduced to somebody, a friend of a friend around uh, kind of the Florida market in particular and a vertical license. And so a lot of advantages there from a commercial standpoint, <clears throat> you know, if you can get in early, be an early mover uh, mm -hmm. in a state market that's tightly controlled, there's few, few competitors yeah there, there's some huge potential so that was yeah okay that's a that largely drove early excitement around cannabis right was right. being first to market right. and really trying to, to grab it so yeah but i was like you know i, I gotta believe in this right you know mm -hmm. and you've kind of seen the antidotal uh you know 60 minute specials with you know somebody's got a central tremor or parkinson's and shaking and can't write their name and you know they, they can uh, smoke a joint and all of a sudden they can write their name perfectly fine okay mm -hmm. what's going on there like what right. is that mechanism of action, yeah. what's the pharmacokinetics and dynamics of, of that compound and why, you know, why, why is it so good for everything from epilepsy to colon cancers to you know, post-operative um, um, you know, chemo and radiation, you know, um, for neurologic pain and things of that nature. So how is that working inside your body? So that was kind of what got me interested into doing the research and finding out, well, why is cannabis so great for all these things? And, you start learning about the human endocannabinoid system, and you're like, they didn't teach us that in school. <laughs> I didn't have that in physiology. Endo referring to naturally producing. Right. right. And you start understanding. Well, and a lot of people don't even realize that. Right. And you're like, wow, I can't, my body produces 140 different cannabinoids naturally. Uh, and, oh, I may be deficient in some of these cannabinoids, which is why I'm having you know, whatever uh, you know, adverse event that I might be having, whether it's, you know, pain and sciatica or whether it's you know, you know a migraine or whatever it might be your cause so now you, you start learning oh i can supplement my body just like i would if i was short on vitamin b12 a vitamin b12 shot which gives me more energy if i'm 80 years old right or yep. testosterone or whatever yep. right if you're low on those things you can supplement it all of a sudden now there's the, the cause and effect and i can in, in, in have a much better quality of life wow that's awesome right it was interesting because I, I, I have never really been interested in the cannabis space um, or marijuana. Like growing up, I'd like, a, like I just saw the kid factor in it, and it always deterred me because I didn't like the way kids behaved. Yeah. Right? So I was not much into 
cannabis at all until I started listening to you talk about it and what Novium was trying to do. And it opened my, my mind more to a real medicinal purpose. Now, I, I could, before that, I could ascend to it has a pain-killing mechanism. It helps people cope with different kinds of mental health issues and things like that. So I, I, I saw that effect. I was like, yeah. It was only when you started talking about it and, and specifically Novium um, and like different terpenes, which I thought was super interesting and how those, the effects in the blends. I was like, okay, there's a real medical case here. Uh, and so I think it's cool to hear you talk about this. And I didn't realize you had a medical background. And then when I'm listening, I'm like, this totally <laughs> explains why he talks about things like this, yeah. this way. Cause it's, it's a very intelligent way to approach it. But what's your, what's your take on kind of the industry right now? How would you sum it up? I know that's kind of a broad question, but where do you see cannabis going? What are you excited about? You know, what things do the, does the industry still need to overcome? Yeah. So it, it you know, we're, we're kind of, it's still a nascent industry, right? We're kind of, We've gotten out of uh, the basements and the closets, you know, <laughs> right. uh, that it's been in for so many decades, you know, uh, with the anti-war campaigns of the 80s and so forth, or anti-drug campaigns of the Thank 80s. Thank you, Nancy Reagan. She yeah. was a lovely lady. Yeah, no, lovely no disrespect lady, to her, but like, yeah. fuck. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're past that. You know, there's still a lot of hurdles, obviously, with federal legalization still being a thing. Uh, there's some bills being, you know, introduced that, that hopefully will, you know, obviously decriminalize. Um, you know, uh, 420. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bill 420. Uh, um, you know, and, and hopefully, yeah, very get, get some people out of jail that are, you know, they're taking up our tax dollars for no reason. And, and mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, mind blowing. Whatever your whatever your thought is on on cannabis as a as a legit way to treat medical, and I think it, it is. And I'd love to hear more about what you think about that. But how the fuck did we get to a point where we criminalize people for putting? natural substances in their own body yeah like this blows me away and that's and that there are people in jail to this day for that reason yeah like we this this has got to stop mm-hmm. asap yeah it's got to be a more effective way to do it right and so you know if you look at portugal or countries like that that there are no illegal drugs right right you know, let's put that money into substance abuse programs or, or other education more yeah education around the, the cause and effect of you know certain drugs and, and what you can do Which, and, and you know m- my opinion on it is tax it like everything else mm-hmm. and then hold people accountable for their behavior not their choice right right so if they do something dumb they don't get the claim well i only did it because i was high no you you made the choice to get high right. so you own the behavior right. but like what the fuck? literally like what are we doing here right. How are we telling people what they can put in their body? Yeah. Well, why do you think that is? Where, 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 how did we get to a point where that's what was our path? Because at one point, it sounds like specifically with marijuana, it was somewhat of a, a normal part of our culture. Like there's talk like Thomas Jefferson used to yeah. smoke weed. And yeah. how the hell did we end up criminalizing this and, and turning yeah. it into this evil substance? Yeah, well, it was, it was obviously part of the apothecary for, for 3,000 years, right? It was just yeah. a part of the, the norm. And then at some point, you know, in the, I guess it's probably the 40s, you know, um, you know, sometime around the uh, uh, Prohibition days and, and so forth. Then you had very strong uh, lobbyists for the cotton industry. And then you also, you know, had some very uh, outdated, yeah. uh, you know, really racial <laughs> motivated uh, legislation in and around. It concocted all sorts of just no factual based stories around you know, cannabis and creating hysteria and, yeah creating hysteria and, and uh, you know it was, uh, it, was, it was more of a geopolitical thing right and, 
so they created it out of nothing and you know because of the interests of uh, you know certain you know powerful people within in, and, in the and for those listening that are like out of nothing for me this the easy the way to look at this is like how the fuck did we justify legalizing alcohol yeah. right which i don't think anyone is going to be able to make an intelligent argument that it isn't far more dangerous and far less healthy mm -hmm. right we're okay with that but right. we're not okay with somebody smoking a little weed like, get yeah. the fuck out of here yeah ridiculous um, yeah, it's, 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 and I can't believe that you know we're, you know, not further ahead really. Especially all of the progress we've made, and, and uh, yeah, now that we hopefully can at least study it, you know, and we can prove with data and good science that oh no, this is actually good for people in a lot of ways, you know, and here's the data to support it. Which yeah. isn't to say there isn't downsides, right. right? I mean, there are just like anything, yeah, anything there are downsides. It's not like it. I don't think. Hopefully nobody's trying to make the argument that there are no downsides, that it's perfectly healthy in all scenarios, and that you don't have to watch out for anything, because you do, yeah. just like alcohol. And it can be an addictive substance, um, evidently. That, that my understanding of that is that there's still an addictive uh, quality to it. it. I just read a few articles recently, I don't know, I'm sure you're more abreast than I am on these things, that they're finding that naturally occurring um, ratios of CBD and THC keeps the, I'm using my own language here, so forgive me, it's not technical, but um, keeps the THC in check where when you remove, and we're able to do this now because we're getting more into the science of it, where we're reducing it like high potency THC without the CBD, that it does seem to have a different impact on your body and can cause more paranoia or like they're even saying okay. some mental health issues. And they're like, part of it is that the CBD factor has a regulating effect on the THC and I remember, I think you were the one that told me this, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, that if you ever get too high on THC to just load up on a bunch of CBD yeah. and it has a like sobering effect, much like, and there's no science to this, I'm not a doctor, I don't play on the internet, yeah. but you know, <laughs> drinking coffee if you're drunk. Yeah. Right? But the same kind of idea. Can you touch on that? Do you sure. have any, any feel? Yeah, well, we talked about the endocannabinoid system, right? And so you've got in your body CB1 and CB2 receptor sites, right? So you've got the CB1 receptors that are along kind of your, your nervous system, brainstem, and, and spinal cord, and then you've got the CB2 receptors on the peripheral and your organs and tissues uh, outside of that. And so you've got the THC molecule and the, and the CBD molecule that bind to the same receptors. And so if you have CBD present, you can block those receptors so that the THC, THC can't bind. Therefore, you know, you can reduce kind of the adverse yeah. So there is some science there is to some that. Science. So yeah, like absolutely. if you ever like the old like every fucking edible you've ever eaten <laughs> says, remember you can always eat more. You, you can can't eat less, right? right? Uh -huh. But if you find yourself in that situation where you ate the whole damn cookie, <laughs> and you didn't mean to, yeah, and you're really high, load up on CBD. Yeah, try to have a, like a CBD vape pen or something like that that you can, you know, it's like a rescue inhaler, <laughs> if you will, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, there's absolute science to that. So it's, it's something that everybody should kind of be aware of if you're just kind of starting to experiment. Do you have any, any thoughts or um, any kind of data research that you've done that would either argue against or for THC isolating and using too much THC without the CBD balance or anything in that combo that could be have negative long-term effects? Because a lot of the studies I've seen recently are coming out and saying like, yeah, Cannabinoids are, are very useful, but THC, if not checked 
actually does have negative mental effects. It's specifically is what they were talking about. Right, Different yeah. kinds of psychosis. Like leading to psychosis. Yeah, I yeah. think, you know, obviously we still got to study a lot and understand. And everybody's different too, right? So right. just what might affect yeah, me adversely <clears throat> doesn't affect you. And so, you know, there's got to be some research done in, in generalities and like, okay, 85% of people respond in this way, right, with these formulations. It, you know, uh, THC probably doesn't need to be propagated, you know, where you've got, we don't need anything that's 100% THC or 50%. If you're talking about flour, you know, like back in the 70s, it was like 12%, 18%. Now we're seeing 33%. Yeah, so it is very, wow. you know, it's being propagated, you know, because THC's got a commercial value, <laughs> value right? Yep. Um, so I think over time, the consumers will get more educated. Uh, and understand like it's not about the highest THC at the lowest price point, you know, and this is more of a supplement. And, um, and more isn't always better. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so I think you know, commercially it'll work itself out. You'll have more and more scientists are coming into this space and analytical chemists and there's more science coming in, even from a, a non-pharmaceutical angle, but it's just more of a traditional you know, CPG oriented company where they're going to create products that are, are good blends for most of the, the folks out there, and you're going to find what works for you, you know, as a consumer. There'll be more education in and around that, you know. That's um, what it, I really liked about Novium, and I'm really, really hoping it catches uh, catches on and, and really grows for a number of reasons. But I felt like they did a great job of making cannabis more approachable for people who are not recreational users, where they're able to see it through a different lens and how it can help them more, like even a year framing of more like a supplement mm -hmm. and to help people who have a hard time sleeping or have extra pain or inflammation in their body. And like that approach to me seems smarter for a majority of people, especially for the people who, you know, are maybe older or, or just their frame of reference around marijuana is a recreational drug for irresponsible kids and seeing it more like, no, there are legit use cases for this and that they can help a lot of people. And I think Novium has, right, and, and been able to reach a lot of people who wouldn't normally say yes to that. So I'm, I'm hoping that continues. I think there's some, um, some opportunity there. So you stayed in the cannabis space through COVID, mm -hmm. right, and kind of pivoted. And, and I want to kind of end with this because I think this is really cool. One of my goals <clears throat> is to take at least one company public, probably multiple companies public. But you had an opportunity to do this in the cannabis space through the middle of a freaking pandemic, nonetheless. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk to us a little bit about that and what that, that experience was like for you? Yeah, and the same kind of idea, right? Disruptive, kind of get into what made you choose to do that. Sure, yeah, so I, I looked at, you know, some of the things we were trying to solve with Novium when we started Novium, right? It's like, you know, how do you appeal to, you know, the two thirds of folks out there that are sitting on the sidelines or are they waiting for their physician to tell them it's okay or their friend group to tell them it's okay to try it but they're not active consumers so how do you create a cpg brand that from five feet away in five seconds oh that looks familiar that's approachable it's in a form factor that i'm you know not scared of it's in a capsule or a transdermal or a tincture or something like that where i don't have to inhale it because you know how can that be good for you necessarily you know um yeah so <clears throat> yeah how do you destigmatize you know from a CPG brand, you know, said, okay, and also it allowed you to get and build a solid brand, right? Is the consistency and quality of a product, right? So formulated by real 
you know, farm D's and scientists, not you know Joe Schmo and his, uh, his garage, right? Like the like, yeah. there's so many yeah. marijuana companies' <laughs> names that are like luscious, like flower Maui, or like yeah. like I'm done. They're making Brass that knuckles. <laughs> yeah, like, Come get some Durban poison. Well, Maui, like, yeah, wowie. Yeah, yeah like <laughs> that doesn't speak to me as a consumer. <laughs> And my parents are sure as hell not going to buy that on the shelf, right? And they're not going to enter the market and give cannabis a shot to see if it works for them with brands like that, right? right? And they got some pictures of, you know, you know, insane, colorful things, you know. It's, it's like, lovely you know, and it has its place, but no, no, yeah, no. It's, yeah, not, it's not going to get to two-thirds. Those people are already in the market. Right, right, they're right. going to buy it in the black market. They're going to buy it in the store or right, whatever. Right. But it's the other two-thirds that are sitting on the sidelines. So you got to be smart about your packaging and your design and your transparency with your test results and, you know, the QR code on the side, even though it wasn't mandated, you know, to give people visibility to what's in this product, what am I going to ingest in my body. Uh, and make sure that it's good quality ingredients. And then more importantly, it's the same, whether I buy it in Florida or California or in China, I want it to be the same, just like Budweiser or Coca-Cola, yep. right? So yep. how, do you, how do you do that and do that at scale? Obviously, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta look at your SFPs, you gotta do it with you know, processing equipment, and, and so you gotta really scale your business appropriately. So when the opportunity was presented you know, um, to help take this company public, you know, what they, I looked at it and said, okay, what are they trying to do within cannabis and other high value cash crops with indoor vertical farming? Like what is the biggest problem they're trying to solve? And it's that quality and consistency at scale, right? You're about to run and I, I, there's a few things I wanna clarify for listeners at home. What is indoor farming? Cause this is, yeah. I think the future in many ways, right? Yeah. I think we're gonna see more of this, but can you just explain that? And yeah. I know it's- Yeah, so you I mean, in, in a 30,000 foot view, it's just growing indoors, right? Versus growing outside in the sunshine and, and in the fields, right? So. Um, so we've seen models where literally cityscapes of skyscrapers are farms, mm -hmm. right? Where they're indoor farms, where we're vertically growing all of our crops in what looks to be skyscrapers, That's but they're crazy. farms and they're harvested year round and in many ways way more efficiently, hmm. right? And can feed, you know, the whole city, they're supposed right. to be self-sustaining, these models of our future. So that's- Yeah, so they're bringing farms into the city, right? So it's closer to where the people are at, right? So you don't lose that time in transit. Uh, you don't have to spray it with preservatives. You don't have- nature, right? So right. it's more natural from that standpoint, but you're just not growing it outdoors. But you're also, you know, you're not relying on only having sun, you know, for 12 hours of the day or in, you know, certain times of the year, maybe less than that. Depending but on the other you're couple of things you're, you're touching on there, you, in you're controlling the environment, which means you're also controlling insects, you know, bacteria, yeah. Yeah, containing, yeah, can't um, things that would affect, that we treat that make the food less quality, right? Right. So that's a really cool thing. This is the industry that he's getting or got into was like, well, how do we do that at scale with high quality return? So yeah. anyway, I think this is an exciting, it's not natural right? right so i think the 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 granola people out there maybe like i like it in the dirt and yeah, it's got to be sun grown yeah. Yeah, but uh yeah. but i think yeah, these sorts of things especially because this technology then lends itself to application in space travel and cultivating other planets which hey listen we're going to continue on this path we're likely going to have to become a multi-planetary species so these kinds of technologies are super interesting to me mm -hmm. because they open up our ability to do that so anyway yeah, yeah so I, I, yeah, what they were really trying to solve, you know, within Canada specifically, is is how do you become that you know, international brand, right? If you're growing and you're known for your high quality flour, and then any derivative that comes from that flour, whatever product subsets are are eventually uh, made from that that flour, 
how do you get that consistent, right? Because you got a plant that produces you know, 500 chemical metabolites, right? Some of those are of more commercial interest than others. Some of them we we don't know yet. We want to experiment, and understand what's the value of some of these. 500. Wow. Yeah. So you got a very. How many of them are psychoactive? Um, well, it's mainly just the delta nines, you know, and delta eight okay. components. So I, you know, I don't know how many exactly of those 500. Um, and uh, I'd have to do a little. I research. didn't realize there were so many. <laughs> yeah, um, they come from the plant. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at all the terpenes and cannabinoids. I mean, just it's a very complex plant. And so hmm. the genetics is is you know, kind of the nature part, which is kind of predetermined in some ways. And then you have the you know the nurture part, which you know how do you control a, a consistent environment? Right, it's impossible to do outdoors. Right, um, right. You can have widely you can have the same crop grown in the same dirt one year the next next, just like with and grapes, right? And you get different tastes and flavors in wine based on, you know, did so we have more so rain? So a sommelier can tell you what right. year, right. not just the vineyard or the region, but the freaking year yeah. based on By the way tasting. it tastes, yeah. which is like crazy. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And so, yeah, so it's like one of those things, so interesting taste and, and uh, therapeutic profiles that you know are going to come but then how do you how do you scale that that you got one really widely successful strain that you're selling at market because it's got a cool purple color right and how do you keep that from becoming a a year or a vineyard versus like hey this is our standard product yeah and i know that i'm going to get that same effect because it was one of the things that consumers kind of told us right they said okay well there's very little 3 P customers in the market, right? You, you go in, you try something once, you have a great experience, you go back in maybe to the same dispensary, you buy the same product, same packaging, uh, and you get a totally different experience. So how much of that is product standardization versus your body? Because I feel that way. I never like, even like I always try, and I'll use edibles for like inflammation and pain relaxing in the night, yep. but I almost never get the same experience every time it's like it's sometimes i can have 500 or five mil five milligrams is that right five milligrams mm -hmm. and it's like oh that's good sometimes yeah. i have five milligrams and i'm like yeah, <laughs> yeah. and i'm gone yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how much is that is product standardization or just the way your body responds to it is it is make and obviously i understand when you eat something that already adds a variance to yeah exactly food. yeah so if some of it may be physiological with your own body based on what you did that day, and are, are you drinking a glass of wine with it, or is it, you know, any of that stuff can affect ultimately. But a, a, a greater portion of it is really how's that product, you know, being standardized and really tough to do with the flower itself, even yep. indoors, right? Yep. Um, and that was why with Novium we went, you know, a lot with the isolate route because you know you get 99.9% .9 purity in the crystalline form. And now we can create our formulas on a consistent product set and, and recipe and, and get as close to that same consistency every batch, every lot. So the consumer gets that same therapy. Even getting effect. down to like terpene ratios, yeah. which I didn't know anything about terpenes until I got around you. And I'm like, well, yeah. there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah. And if you get, you know, as long as you have the consistent source, you know, from a trusted supplier with the, with the, the, you know, the, the testing results and you know to verify oh yep this is you know, as close to that 99.9 percent .9 pure and then we can add it back in in the ratios that we want to get the same product well you can't do that with flour right <laughs> or even you know the oils you know you're going to have 
you're sourcing distillate, you're going to have a different percentage of THC and different cannabinoids and different terpene profiles in every batch. So even though it's, you know, it meets your specs and it's within, oh yeah, it needs to be 80% THC and 80% CBD or whatever, you're still going to have a little difference there in variability, which is kind of the enemy of building a brand. And so I looked, you know, that was what Novium was trying to do with its, its product formulations. And then, you know, the company that was I helped take public was trying to help cultivators get as consistent quality product as they possibly could by controlling the variables, right? The nurture piece. Um, so you're going to get your strain. Strain is prevalent for, you know, these types of, of, of terpenes and cannabinoids. That's great. But now how do I maximize it? How do I take it from, you know, X percent THC and X percent, you know, let's say THCV, let's say that's the cannabinoid of interest, which is one of those ones that uh, for uh, uh, diet, you know, is, is super important um, and, and potentially diabetes and things of that nature and the implications there. So how do I propagate a strain that, let's say, you know, the highest percentage in nature is, you know, 5%. How do I take it to 12%, right? Well, huge. <clears throat> yeah, in a four by eight by nine foot tall micro growth chamber, it, you could do, you know, 100 of those units and you could switch, you know, relative humidity at different weeks of the growth stage at week seven or at week 12 or the right the the red spectrum and the lights you know let's say i want to produce anthocyan creates big purple buds that you know go for great commercial value because it looks cool it's gnarly and hairy <laughs> and i want to make sure Sticky i get buds, that man. and i know in day 57 that's when i got to turn on the and, and dial up the infrared spectrum in my lighting system to produce that well, that's a, wow. it's important to know, okay, day 57, I got to do that or else I'm not going to do it. And if I'm doing a traditional grow and I got a 20 by 20 or 30 by 20 room, I might have like three or four strains in there and they all get the same light. Right. And the plants in the middle. Super hard to get a consistent yeah. result that way. Yeah. The plants in the middle of the block get more light than the plants on the exterior. And the, the plants on the exterior get more breeze and wind from the fans than the ones in the middle. And so even within that same lot, same, you know, uh, you know, varietal, you're going to get plants on the outside that have different cannabinoids than the plants in the middle. Like, that's not good, right? But if you can break it down into a smaller scale and then power decision-making with data, right? Big data, thousand, you know, a million data points per year per vertical farming unit. And you can stack these three high with integrated catwalks and you can get 6x the yield in the same amount of linear square foot. Now I don't have to go build another building to... Mm -hmm. Uh, produce more product, uh, you know, based on the demand I'm getting for my brand. So. And so you have, as we've established, a strong background in sales. You also have a medical mind. And so you came in to help grow this company and you ran their sales force. Yep. SVP of Global Sales. SVP of Global Sales. And you crushed it. And you look at the numbers, it was like crushed our quarter, crushed our quarter, crushed our quarter. Um, and then went public. Was that, has that always been a goal of yours? Was that something you were interested in doing? Or was it just kind of like, oh, here's a cool opportunity and that's just where it's going? Yeah, so I've been part of, uh, you know, obviously entrepreneurial companies running it myself, as well as worked for big Fortune 500 um, you know, leaders. And, but I'd never been a part of that process of, of taking a company public. And I'd raised money for private companies, um, mm -hmm. angel investors, PEs and VCs. And, and so I had some experience there, but you know, that's a different type of raise versus sure going public, right? And the amount of, uh, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley and compliance and documentation and a lot of scrutiny and visibility and, you know, 
uh, you know, it's a different circuit, right? It's like a grind where you're, you're talking to, you know, 20 investment bankers a day for like six weeks leading up to the IPO, right? <clears throat> so I had never been a part of that process, didn't understand the amount of, you know, the, you know, the S one filings and all the paperwork didn't need to be a part of that. It's like an opportunity to to be a part of that and learn about it. You know, what was what, what that big like. learnings? I mean, we could spend. We don't have much time. I'm going to wrap this up here soon. But um, big learnings around that. What was what things did you kind of take away from that? What did you like? What didn't you like? Like oh, about that process. I know we talked privately about it, and it was like yeah. exciting, also really frustrating. And there's just a different level of scrutiny and oversight, and then. Numbers, you know, everything seems to become about numbers and, and taking care of your stockholders. So, what shareholders? What was that for you? What was your experience with that? <clears throat> yeah, I think that you know, it wasn't a ton of difference in terms of like how you present to a VC or a PE raising money privately versus publicly. I mean, it's the same questions that you're going to get about the performas and the management team and your vision and market fit and you know valuations and things of that nature. You know, so I got felt pretty prepared for that piece of it. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a game. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's going to be some aspects of the game that you like and you enjoy and you feel comfortable and others that don't. Um, and then, you know, what you might need to do and how you present things, um, you know, uh, maybe a little bit different than what you're comfortable with. <laughs> and, and, and I think, you yeah. know, without getting into all the details, yeah. there's some salesmanship here, right, mm -hmm. to present because the, your audience is catering towards your shareholders and making sure that they're feeling comfortable with their investment, right? Mm -hmm. And there's some things there that are interesting on many levels. Um, did you, uh, side note, I don't know if I got to ask you this, was it a virtual bell ringing or is the, the floor open? So, yeah, the, uh, there was actually a real bell ringing. Um, you know, I didn't go up for it because it was you know, really just uh, the core team, the CFO, CEO, um, uh, that drove down from from Boston uh, to New York because everybody's masked up and it had to be outside, so there wasn't a bell ringing inside. But they uh -oh. you know, threw the Nasdaq thing up or whatever, and then I think later on this uh, past I think February they you know, brought the team back and did an official cool. <laughs> bell ringing cool. and such. So but, very cool. Yeah. Um, now you're you've moved on. Check that off your list. And we'll just wrap up with this. So now you're working with a new company out of the U UK okay. that's in IoT. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, the company's called Device Authority. Um, it's kind of been in the IoT uh, identity and access management space for about six years. So smaller startup, a few million dollars in sales. But you know, six years ago, people were not talking about device identities for um, their IoT devices, right? So. Um, Corporate enterprise security does not equal IoT security, right? So you've got you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of devices coming on and connecting to everybody's network. Um, some of those are, are, most of them obviously are headless, right? So it's not like your traditional laptop and, and traditional enterprise editing access where you got login and password and multifactorial uh, authentication and face ID and you know, all those types of traditional authentication methods uh, to make sure that whoever's accessing the data on the network and you know is should be there <laughs> right you got these devices that a lot of times are just shipped out of the box they don't have a secure element that's like a abc123 password or they may not even have that they just be, be flicked on they connect to the internet bluetooth wi-fi in many cases by design right because you want it to be easy, easy right you frictionless it it's like i was thinking about this as you were explaining it in my house there is i think 62 connected devices mm -hmm. 
from like Internet of Things is here. Like, what the yeah. fuck? Yeah. I don't even know what all of them are. Right. But most of them, to your point, don't have passwords and are headless. They're not like there isn't. So you know, what we're finding is that nefarious actors have figured out how to hack into these devices. Yep. Right. And so your company helps protect um, enterprise clients from that happening where they, they, they legit could have thousands or hundreds of thousands of connected devices. Any one of them are susceptible to being hacked into and then potentially a, a way for a hacker to get in and get in information, protected information. You were sharing, who was it that just got hacked and were get, they were pulling credit card information off of? Yeah, it was, it was Target. They had the connected HVAC system, oh right? They're, so their HVAC system, the freaking air conditioning that is connected to their, their Wi-Fi network, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, someone was able to hack that to get wow. in to credit card information. That's, like, that's the fucking world we're living in. Yeah. And so your company helps protect enterprise clients by doing what? On a high so, level. Yeah, so they basically give that device that's headless an identity, right? And so let's say that device, the first time it connects to the network, is it's like a challenge response mechanism, right? So that device would phone home to our Keyscaler product and Keyscaler would challenge, you know, challenge that device and say, oh, you're trying to connect to a corporate enterprise, why? Okay, then you should be able to answer these questions about yourself and whether or not you're supposed to be here. So you take the entropy of the device, so uh, you know, a bit and byte and pieces of the serial number, the Mac OS address, uh, latitude and longitude of, of the device, you know, so that if it's, somebody steals that device and takes it home to their garage to hack into a corporate network, because it was an authenticated device on that network at one point. No, no, nope, that device is not where it's yeah. supposed to be. You're quarantined, bud. You're not mm -hmm. getting on the network, right? So any of those, it's an algorithmic approach that's you know, virtually you know, impossible to clone or spoof, you know? Um, and, and so it gives that software root of trust and gives that device a real ID so that every time it goes to communicate with a network is this challenge response mechanism and there's a, a you know, PKI certificate or a, a a code, essentially a key, right? That that is stored and rotated on a, you know, maybe. And it's dynamic, right? It's so dynamic. it's not something that you could hack and get, and it would work right consistently because it's always rotating. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what we do. So for brownfield devices that already been deployed, or let's say next gen technology, how do you flash that that library and agent onto a chip, which is then going to be put into a, a TPM into a device that's been manufactured, and then how do you protect it from chip? to maybe OEM, to distributor, to connecting to a cloud platform like Azure or AWS or, or Google. Um, because if you can't, you can't trust the data if you can't trust the device, right? Mm -hmm. So you gotta have that zero trust, you know, uh, in traditional corporate enterprise security is always more about detect and respond versus prevent and protect, right? right. So mm -hmm. these devices that are dumb, they're headless, you gotta start with that zero root of trust. And, and that framework as you're sharing it, beautifully said, is probably creating some of the challenges in the sales kind of approach because we were talking about like a lot of companies don't realize there's a problem until there's a problem, right? Like, oh, we haven't had any problems yet. Yeah. So it's like, you know, they don't respond until after there's been a pain, yeah. a pain point. So how are you addressing that or what, what challenges are you trying to overcome in educating people around that right now? Yeah, no, um, yeah, it's definitely, it's like insurance, right? You know, it's like, okay, we've already, yeah, yeah. usually security is an afterthought, right? So they, we have to start changing the, the thinking process about it. It's not trust and verify. No, it's verify and then trust, right? <laughs> We're talking about these devices. So, yeah, it's just a matter, 
if, it's not a matter of if, it's when, right? You're going to be compromised. And then, you know, it's just educating them on like, okay, well, if you're compromised, I know you haven't had any issues yet, but if you do, let's look at some other examples within your industry and what was the cost to the organization right. uh, after you've had a breach. What does that look like? How much more costly is that versus spending a couple extra dollars as a percentage of your device cost to go ahead and get this taken care of on, on the upfront? Um, and the downstream stuff, you know, that's just what's happened to this company. Who knows what could happen to you? And so that's, the, you know, it's a, it's a big education period right now because it is kind of a newer market that people are just now starting to become aware of. But because there's been so many ransomware attacks and man in the middle type of attacks, you know, we've got legislation, right? We've got the SBOM, the Software Bill of Materials that yeah. Joe Biden's executive order passed last May of 2021 is now going into effect in 2022, which is essentially an ingredient list, like on the side of a package, just saying, hey, you're buying this device from company X and, and okay, well, it's not just the hardware components. It's like, hey, we've got all these different software, open source codes and, and so forth that are part of that software that you're now buying. Well, I need to know what's in device them. and what's in them. Because if, if there's a known vulnerability that's you know, out there, I need to know whether or not I need to patch this device and so forth. What was it? I was just thinking about. It was wasn't it just last year? Time is in a weird thing because of mm -hmm. COVID. But <laughs> the pipeline got hacked yeah. and then held. Yeah. Held hostage like yeah, solar winds. Yeah. Yeah. Do yeah. you remember that? That was crazy. Yeah, that's why gas went up. You know, uh, almost to the point where it's at now. But it's another, okay. another story for another podcast. Oh, that's but, right. That's why gas went up. It's like well, it, like the last summer maybe. This gas um, keeps going up. Yeah. I thought it was the war. Wasn't the war the reason? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Even the president doesn't know. Somebody should really do about this, something about those gas prices. Like, hey, you're the one that shut down the Alaska pipeline. You're day two in office, bro. <laughs> Another president. Yeah. We're going to make gas cheaper than you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Wild. Well, it has been awesome having you yeah, on. I'm glad we were able to fun, do that this yeah, morning. Yeah. Um, it would be cool. And so... Your newest venture, one more time, if people want to look it up, look more right. into it. Device Authority. Device yep. Authority. And Jason Winkler, everybody, you can reach him on LinkedIn if you have a need for his, uh, for his business services. Fantastic dude, but yeah. we appreciate you having on today. Yeah, thanks for inviting Thank me. This was, uh, it was fun. I didn't really anticipate it. It would really be all about me, but okay. <laughs> yeah.